The cold Australian wind howled across the Northern Territory. Mount Uluru loomed in the distance. In its shadow, Lindy Chamberlain struggled to put her daughter to bed on August 17, 1980. Lindy's family had been up all day hiking, but baby Azaria refused to sleep. While Lindy tried to soothe the child, her husband, Michael, and six-year-old son, Aiden, grilled vegetarian sausages. Nearby, another couple, the Lowe's, conversed with each other. Other families walked around the campground. They talked, drank, and ate. A dingo approached the campsite, but kept out of the light. Michael grabbed a crust of bread and tossed it to the wild dog, who gobbled it up. Lindy tutted at her husband, remarking that he shouldn't encourage it. After the canine slipped into darkness, the adults returned to their conversation. Finally, around 7.55 p.m., baby Azaria fell into a deep sleep. Michael watched as Lindy strode towards the family's tent with Azaria in her arms. Aiden followed. The proud father had no idea that he'd never see his nine-week-old baby again. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. This week, we'll explore the disappearance of Azaria Chamberlain, a nine-week-old baby who vanished during a family camping trip. We'll also examine the stunning theories about what happened to the infant. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. On the evening of August 17, 1980, Lindy Chamberlain put her infant daughter, Azaria, to bed. The family was enjoying a rustic camping trip, but it ended in tragedy. While her parents chatted at the campfire, Baby Azaria vanished. Lindy suggested her daughter was taken by a dingo, one of Australia's native wild dogs. An alternative theory implied that Lindy lied about Azaria's death, and the dingo story covered up a far more sinister truth. Perhaps the Chamberlains murdered the two-month-old. Azaria Chamberlain's short life began on June 11, 1980. Her father, Michael, was a preacher in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Her mother, Lindy, spent her days making wedding dresses and looking after her sons, six-year-old Aiden and four-year-old Reagan. The Chamberlains were devoutly religious. Though many Christians believed in the second coming of Christ, the Adventists thought his return was imminent. They lived their lives always ready to be transported to heaven. The Chamberlains were vegetarians and abstained from alcohol. They were well-liked in their hometown of Mount Isa in Queensland, Northeast Australia. Azaria seemed destined to grow up with her peaceful, loving family, but her life was shorter than anyone expected. In August 1980, the Chamberlains went on vacation, 
they traveled over 800 miles west to Uluru. On the morning of August 17th, they hiked around the massive mountain. Michael took photographs, carefully documenting his family's vacation. He snapped a picture of Lindy holding two-month Azaria up. The family climbed around the mountain, a task made difficult by the two rambunctious children and an infant. After their fun but exhausting day, the family settled in for the night. At the public campsite, they met another couple, Sally and Greg Lowe, who'd brought along their year-and-a-half-old baby, Chantel. The two families immediately hit it off. When Michael served the sausages, the Lowe's may not have been thrilled to discover that they were vegetarian. And as Greg sipped his beer, Lindy spoke up on what she saw as the wickedness of alcohol. But the slight scolding didn't derail the evening. The couples continued to talk about family, life, and the day's adventures. As the sun went down, the air got colder, and Lindy made sure Azaria was warm in her white jumpsuit and matching knit matinee jacket. Four-year-old Reagan went to bed before anybody else, but six-year-old Aiden stubbornly stayed awake, playing with his parents and chasing a mouse. Around eight o'clock, Azaria fell asleep. Lindy and Aiden left the group to put her in the tent. Ten minutes later, they returned to the campfire. With two children asleep, the Chamberlains socialized with the Lowe's while Aiden played nearby. A few minutes later, Sally Lowe heard a baby's cry. The wail came from the direction of the Chamberlain's tent. Concerned, Lindy got up to investigate. Her scream sent Michael rushing over. He ripped open the front flap to see Azaria's bed was empty. There was no sign of his baby. Michael tore out of the tent and saw his wife standing by the road leading out of the campsite. She didn't have Azaria in her arms. Michael's heart stopped when Lindy yelled at the top of her lungs, My God, my God, the dingo's got my baby! The campground erupted into chaos. Michael called for Greg Lowe. They ran in the direction Lindy said the dingo went, but total darkness lay beyond the light of the campfire. Neither man could see anything. They rushed back to the campsite for a flashlight. Sally ran to her car and rummaged around. She simply couldn't believe what was happening. Sally tore their supplies apart and finally found what Greg was looking for. Before he set off, he asked Sally to drive to the nearest police station, but it was no use. Sally shook and clutched her baby to her chest. She wasn't thinking clearly. By this point, the rumors had made the rounds and every camper had heard what had happened. A pair of vacationers drove to the local police station only five minutes from the campsite. The head of the station, Frank Morris, lived right next door. When he heard the reports, he hurried to the site to investigate. He was in such a rush, he didn't even put on his uniform. When he peeked inside the Chamberlain's tent, Morris saw mattresses and sleeping bags, the smallest of which sat in the corner on top of an old carpet. Morris swept his flashlight over the rug, illuminating dark stains, small flecks of blood. Outside the tent, Morris saw a trail of what looked like dingo tracks leading away into the blackness. Morris needed to search the area, but he didn't know enough about the wilds around Uluru. He called for the head ranger. 
He and the search teams needed all the help they could get to bring the child back alive. By this point, Azaria had been missing for nearly 30 minutes. Lindy and Michael were already losing hope. They believed in God, but they didn't know if it was his will for Azaria to survive. Michael feared that a hungry dingo would have killed the baby immediately. If she'd somehow survived the attack, she'd freeze to death in the cold. At night, the temperatures around Uluru could drop as low as 28 degrees Fahrenheit. That just meant the rescuers had no time to lose. While they waited for the ranger to arrive, people set off into the night to find anything they could. Beams of light swept across the scrub brush. Mothers nervously watched their children, afraid another wild dog might come into the campground. Amidst this activity, Sally Lowe tried to get six-year-old Aiden to sleep, but it was no use. Aiden wailed, the dingo has our bubby in his tummy. Sally shuddered to think about the cries she'd heard less than an hour before. She couldn't shake the feeling that she heard the child's death wail, and she could only imagine how much worse the tragedy was for the Chamberlains. When he finally arrived at roughly 8.30 p.m., Chief Ranger Derek Roth expected he'd have to comfort frantic parents. But he was surprised by the Chamberlain's strange sense of calm. Roth was prepared for hope, fury, or anguish. But instead, the couple seemed emotionally numb to the tragedy. As Roth interviewed them, the Chamberlains said they were reconciled to the fact that they'd never see their child alive again. But they still wanted to find their daughter's remains even if there wasn't much left to find. Around 9 p.m., Morris and Roth organized roughly 300 volunteers into a massive human chain. Armed with flashlights, they struck out across the grasslands. The baby wore all white, and they were confident they could spot her easily. But another searcher, separate from the chain, found the first real clue. Amateur tracker Murray Habby scoured the brush in the area that Lindy had first pointed at, where the dingo disappeared, and he spotted some dingo prints. After a few more minutes of searching, he went to Chief Ranger Roth to report his finding. Roth called Aboriginal wilderness expert Neva Minyantiri to verify the find. Minyantiri noticed something else, a depression in the earth roughly the size of a baby. The three concluded that the dingo must have set Azaria down to rest. Unfortunately, the tracks disappeared after the depression and the trio couldn't find where the trail went. In fact, as the night wore on, there was no sign of the lost child. The Chamberlains were anxious for any word from the searchers. Even though they'd given up on finding Azaria alive, they wanted closure, but no one said anything. Around midnight, a local nurse named Bobby Downs approached the family to ask if they wanted to go to a motel rather than sleep in a blood-splattered tent. Michael protested, saying they couldn't afford the room, but Bobby told him that nobody would make them pay for it. With that assurance, Lindy and Michael Chamberlain took Aiden and Reagan to the Uluru Motel, but the grieving parents found no rest. And their sleepless night only got worse once the media heard their story. 
The following morning, at 7.30 a.m., the Adelaide News got a tip from a source in Alice Springs, the closest town to Uluru. A child had gone missing. The news agency wasted no time tracking down the Chamberlains. Michael had just finished telling his parents the tragic news when the phone rang. It was the Adelaide News. They wanted to interview Michael and Lindy. The couple agreed. They wanted to honor Azaria by sharing her story. And maybe they could save other parents from similar grief by warning them of the dangers when camping with a small child. Shortly before 5 p.m., Michael and Lindy stood outside the hotel carrying their boys. A reporter, Jeff DeLuca, asked what had happened. Lindy recounted the events of the previous night. She said she saw a dingo leaving the tent, but she didn't see anything in its mouth. However, when she discovered Azaria's absence, she'd put two and two together. Michael followed up, noting the dingo had lingered around the campsite the night before. He supposed it had been stalking the family and waiting for its chance to strike. But even the horrible tragedy left his faith unshaken. He said, the loss of our baby is the will of God. DeLuca asked Michael to repeat the line. He couldn't believe what he'd heard. Michael reaffirmed what he said. The reporter was appalled. He couldn't imagine how anyone could be so calm and poised in the face of their baby's death. As DeLuca and his crew packed up their equipment, the story nagged at him. He'd never heard of a dingo grabbing a baby before. And Michael and Lindy's reaction felt off. Something didn't add up. Up next, the rumors swirl that Azaria was murdered. Hi, it's Richard. Ready to hear about my new favorite Spotify original from Parcast? It's called Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, and it uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder, she'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as Richard Nixon, George Washington, Teddy Roosevelt, JFK, and more. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the story. On August 17, 1980, tragedy struck the Chamberlain family when nine-week-old Azaria vanished from their tent. Her mother, Lindy Chamberlain, said she saw a dingo escaping into the wilderness, but over 300 volunteers combed the area around the campsite and found nothing. Seven days after Azaria vanished, police officer Frank Morris had concluded that Azaria was dead. 
he still hadn't uncovered a body or any hard clues about where the dingo had gone. But the infant couldn't have survived a week on its own. The park was over 500 square miles, and searching that vast expanse for an infant's remains was a fool's errand. But just as Morris reportedly advised that the search be called off, a man walked into his office. Wally Goodwin and his family had been photographing the area when they'd uncovered discarded baby's clothes. Morris rushed to the scene, which was about three and a half miles west of the campsite. The initial search had focused on the east where Lindy had seen the dingo run off. Goodwin led him to a baby's white jumpsuit. It was stained brown with dirt, torn at the collar and inside out. The neckline was rusty red with old blood. Morris examined the clothing, surprised at its good condition. Although it was stained, the jumpsuit was mostly intact and laid neatly on the ground. Though dingoes were known to unwrap food, the idea that they could remove a baby's outfit without damaging it was unthinkable. If a dingo had torn it off a child, the clothing should have been in tatters. Morris called a team to block the ghastly sight from wandering tourists. The last thing he needed was unsuspecting bystanders spoiling the evidence. The case was getting complicated. The police contacted the Chamberlains to confirm whether the clothes matched what Azaria wore on the night of her disappearance. The family's description of the outfit matched. The evening of August 24th, the discovery of the baby's clothes was a leading news story, but reporters and police alike expressed doubts about the Chamberlain's story. Dingoes were dangerous and occasionally attacked children at parks. But as of 1980, no one in Australia had ever been killed by a dingo, and no one had ever heard of one running off with a baby in the middle of the night. Police officer John Lincoln claimed it was impossible for a small dingo to steal a 10-pound baby. At their largest, dingoes are usually 20 to 30 pounds, about the weight of a cocker spaniel or a corgi. It would have been difficult for the dingo to lift the baby, let alone carry it away while evading capture. To demonstrate the absurdity, Lincoln attempted to carry a 10-pound bucket of sand from his teeth. He only managed the feat for a few seconds. And many people were repulsed when the Chamberlain's interview first aired on television. Viewers were shocked that a couple who just lost a child could appear so composed in the face of unthinkable tragedy. And when they said that Azaria's death was God's will, it seemed like they were happy their child had met her fate. Some skeptics suggested that there was more to this story than meets the eye. If a dingo didn't take the baby, then something more disturbing must have happened. Maybe Lindy Chamberlain had murdered her own daughter and Michael helped cover it up. Some pointed to the Chamberlain's faith as evidence that they'd committed the crime. People knew that religious extremists could commit despicable acts. Just two years prior, the horrific Jonestown massacre made international headlines when more than 900 members of a cult died by suicide. According to a vicious rumor, the name Azaria was Hebrew for sacrifice in the wilderness. Naturally, this led to a conspiracy theory that the couple had ritually killed their baby for God. 
Lindy and Michael countered that Azaria meant whom God aids, and there's no evidence that the Adventist church ever practiced human sacrifice. Even so, the media pointed to the fact that Lindy seemed cold and emotionless in her interviews. This was little more than sexist criticism. People grieve in all sorts of ways. While some get emotional, others shut down. According to Leah Royden, a New Zealand psychotherapist, it's perfectly normal to feel numb in the face of an unexpected loss. But there's little doubt that Lindy's demeanor swayed public perception. In one report, a journalist asked Lindy if she was surprised that the baby's clothing was intact. Lindy said she wasn't. To explain, she said that dingoes tended to peel the flesh off of their prey, like an orange. People were repulsed that she could talk so coldly about her baby being flayed. Other papers, like The Truth and The Sun, amplified the rumors with headlines, Azaria, Jacket a Plant, and Azaria, Sacrifice Link. In the midst of the coverage, Lindy started to receive death threats. People called and screamed at her that she was a witch or worse. Strangers gathered outside the house and imitated dingo howls. It got so bad, the family moved from Mount Isa to Avondale College in Kurenbong, nearly 1,400 miles away. But they couldn't escape the legal consequences of Azaria's death. The media storm convinced the Australian government to open an official inquest into the parents' story. In December 1980, the coroner and magistrate of the Northern Territory, Dennis Barrett, presided over a preliminary trial. To be clear, nobody had been charged with a murder or homicide. Instead, Barrett had to rule whether or not there was any human involvement in Azaria Chamberlain's death. Prosecutor Ashley McNay opened the hearing by describing the damaged jumpsuit. He claimed the rips were more consistent with scissors than with a dingo attack. Moreover, McNay suggested that the clothes had been placed in the dirt rather than dragged, and they could have only been turned inside out by human hands. But McNay failed to establish any potential motive for a murder and didn't give any definitive proof that a human killer was involved. Even though McNay's argument cast doubt on Lindy's story, he only had circumstantial evidence. Judge Barrett ruled that the Chamberlains were telling the truth. The case was dismissed. However, even the official ruling didn't disperse the suspicions. Civilians and investigators continued to conduct their own investigations. One such forensic expert was James Cameron, a renowned professor of forensic medicine at the University of London. The Northern Territory Police Department contacted him for a second opinion. He examined Azaria's clothes. He found no dingo hair or saliva. That, coupled with the blood spatter patterns in the tent, led him to determine that there was no dingo involved in Azaria's death. Based on Cameron's conclusion, the police acquired a warrant to search the Chamberlain's residence. They raided their new house on September 19, 1981, a year and a month after Azaria's disappearance. Authorities took photographs and collected hundreds of personal items. A few days later, they reopened the case. 
The second inquest into Azaria's death began in December. The government charged Lindy with murder and Michael as an accessory after the fact. The prosecutor, Ian Barker, laid out a forceful case, this time to a jury, not a coroner. He didn't bother establishing a motive, which would all be speculation anyway. He encouraged the jurors instead to focus on the facts, and the evidence seemed to speak for itself. First, the baby's white jumpsuit was relatively unharmed. The one small tear was more consistent with scissors than with a dingo's teeth, and there were no traces of wild dog saliva whatsoever. The second piece of evidence was the blood stain on the baby's clothes, or rather, the lack thereof. The only major stains were on the neck of the garment. The prosecution argued that this was because the baby died by a blade to the throat. Additionally, Cameron and other scientists identified a faded handprint on the side of the jumpsuit, in dried blood. The investigators who'd raided the Chamberlain's house also reported that their car contained residue from bloodstains. There wasn't enough to test in the lab, but the spray pattern was consistent with an artery being severed. The jurors heard clue after clue, all pointing to one conclusion. Lindy Chamberlain had killed her nine-week-old baby. Coming up, a country doubts a mother's story, and the jury makes a ruling. And now, back to the story. In the fall of 1982, Lindy Chamberlain went on trial for the disappearance of her nine-week-old baby, Azaria. Prosecutor Ian Barker argued that when Lindy walked away from the campsite, she took Azaria to the car. There, she slit the infant's throat. Since her son Aiden was with her, Lindy and Michael would have had to pressure him into silence. After Lindy killed Azaria, she allegedly disposed of the body before coming back and staging the dingo scene. The defense responded to every single one of these theories, First, the person who first heard Azaria's distressed cry wasn't a member of the family. It was Sally Lowe. Surely if the baby had been dead for minutes, a stranger wouldn't have pretended to hear her. And Lindy was only out of sight for 10 minutes. Not enough time to murder an infant and quietly hide the body. In addition, the supposed bloodstains found in the family's car weren't necessarily the smoking gun the prosecution thought they were. A year before Azaria's disappearance, the Chamberlains had picked up an injured hiker with a bleeding leg. The court brought this man in as a witness. He confirmed that the blood in the car could have been his. And crucially, one key piece of evidence was missing. When Lindy put Azaria to sleep, the baby had worn a white-knitted matinee jacket to keep warm. Although police had found her jumpsuit, the jacket was still unaccounted for. The defense said there was no saliva or blood on the jumpsuit because the jacket had covered it during the dingo attack. In turn, the prosecution simply said that there was no jacket, that it was yet another detail that Lindy was making up. While jurors weighed the evidence, the court of public opinion convicted Lindy. And as the trial dragged on, the media played up Lindy's presumed guilt. 
They frequently edited interviews to skew her answers and drum up ratings, and viewers lapped it up. People seemed to readily believe the idea that Lindy Chamberlain was a child-killing monster. They just needed an official ruling to confirm what they already felt was true. On October 28, 1982, Justice Muirhead sent the jury away to make their ruling. The next day at 8.37 p.m., they returned with their verdict. They found both of the Chamberlains guilty. Lindy for murdering Azaria and Michael for covering it up. The news sent shockwaves through Australia. People applauded. Lindy Chamberlain, pregnant with her fourth child, was sentenced to life in prison. However, Justice Muirhead suspended Michael's 18-month sentence so he could care for Aidan and Reagan. In Australia's Barama prison, Lindy gave birth to her fourth child. She named her daughter Kalia. Over the next three years, both Michael and Lindy appealed the conviction, but it was no use. Lindy's life sentence seemed set in stone. However, things weren't as grim as they'd first appeared. Some people weren't convinced of the prosecution's argument, which centered on a lot of circumstantial evidence. So as the years wore on, reports began to cast doubt on the state's case. And around 1984, scientist Leslie N. Smith made an astonishing discovery. He noticed something off about the photo of the supposed arterial spray in the Chamberlain's car. Upon further investigation, he revealed that the stain wasn't blood. It was emulsion, a sound deadener that's usually applied to cars during manufacture. And a later revelation proved the alleged bloody handprint on the jumpsuit was simply red dirt. It was clear the prosecution had botched the investigation. If these two pieces of evidence were bogus, the Australian public had no idea what was real. Such new evidence gave rise to a Free Lindy movement. Over 100,000 people petitioned the government to release her, but to no avail. It took a whole other tragedy to bring justice to the Chamberlains. Five and a half years after Azaria's death in January 1986, a hiker named David Brett attempted to climb Uluru. Brett's journey ended abruptly when he lost his footing and fell to his death. About a week after the fatal fall, rangers found Brett's body near several dingo lairs. They scoured the area looking for his belongings when they found a crumpled baby's matinee jacket. It was torn and crusty. The buttons hung on by a thread. But it was clear that the jacket had once been white. Investigators immediately identified the jacket as Azaria's. Lindy hadn't lied about its existence. This final clue proved Lindy's innocence, at least to Australian officials. The chief minister of the Northern Territories ordered Lindy's immediate release from prison. On February 7, 1986, she left prison for good. Lindy returned to her family and tried to pick up where she'd left off, but she still had a conviction on her record. Shockwaves rippled through the nation as people grappled with this turn of events. 
legal reviews, inquests, and academics have sought to figure out how such a gross miscarriage of justice could have occurred. Some pointed to British forensic scientist James Cameron, who had been a key source of information for the prosecution. Cameron also had a spotty record. Lindy Chamberlain wasn't the first innocent person his testimony put behind bars. Ten years previously, Cameron's forensic analysis helped convict three teenage boys for the murder of a sex worker. But subsequent reviews proved all three boys' innocence. In light of these revelations, Justice Trevor Morling re-reviewed the Chamberlain case. He went over every piece of evidence and court document, then wrote a 379-page analysis. Based on the evidence, he declared that the prosecution hadn't proved Lindy's guilt. According to Morling, she should never have been convicted. The Australian Court of Appeals canceled all the charges against Lindy and Michael Chamberlain in 1988. They paid the family a reported $1.3 million in damages. But even then, much of the Australian public was still skeptical about their story of a dingo eating a baby. Although Lindy was cleared, Azaria's death certificate still listed her cause of death as unknown. Lindy and Michael both pressured the government to change it. In 1995, the officials responded with a third inquest. But with no body to examine, the coroner couldn't amend Azaria's death certificate. Michael and Lindy were divorced by this point, but they continued to campaign for a revision. And as they did, other incidents changed the public's mind about Lindy's story. In the 1980s, Many people had seen dingoes as relatively harmless, like cute but untamed dogs. However, dingoes are much closer to wolves than to domestic dogs. Wild canines are naturally wary of humans. As cities sprang up and more people encroached on dingo territory, they lost their instinctive caution. Azaria's attack might have seemed like an anomaly at the time, but more followed. On April 30th, 2001, a trio of boys, two seven-year-olds and one nine-year-old, took an early morning walk on Fraser Island, a popular tourist spot off of Queensland. However, it soon became clear they weren't alone. A pair of dingoes were stalking them. At first, the group turned around and tried to walk back to the campsite. But when the dogs gave no indication of letting up, the boys broke into a run. The nine-year-old, Clinton Gage, tripped and fell. The other boys kept running, hoping to find help. But while they fled, Clinton was killed by the dingoes. At least a hundred attacks occurred on Fraser Island and mainland Australia between 1997 and 2012. These terrifying and sometimes tragic incidents added more credibility to Lindy and Michael's story. In 2012, a fourth inquest gave them what they wanted. 32 years after their nine-week-old vanished, the court ruled that Azaria Chamberlain was, in fact, killed by a dingo. Her heartbreaking tale is about more than a disappearance. It's about the power of the media. Decades before anyone coined the phrase cancel culture, Lindy and Michael were victims of a vicious smear campaign. 
since neither behaved in the way that the public thought devastated parents should, they were presumed guilty. And the facts were bent around the presumption of guilt instead of the other way around. Even after they received justice and vindication, Lindy and Michael were an international punchline. A November 1991 episode of the hit sitcom Seinfeld depicted lead character Elaine adopting a fake Australian accent. She declared, maybe the dingo ate your baby. Likewise, a 1995 Simpsons episode showed 10-year-old Bart prank-calling an Australian man. Bart mocked him, quipping, Hey, I think I hear a dingo eating your baby. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Frasier, and Tropic Thunder all featured similarly comedic references to the Chamberlain's tragedy. For American audiences, the child's death and the parents' grief were little more than a meme. The death of a child is difficult enough to endure. But thanks to sensationalist coverage and the miscarriage of justice, Michael and Lindy Chamberlain lost more than a daughter. Their family broke apart. Their personal lives turned upside down. Lindy spent three years in prison. And even after the whole ordeal, they still had to fight to get the government to admit that they'd been telling the truth the whole time. A horrific tragedy became a trauma that lasted for decades. And that didn't happen because of forces beyond human control. It was caused by people, many well-meaning. But they let their biases and emotions steer their judgment towards hate. Newspaper readers and TV viewers made a snap judgment. But the consequences lasted a lifetime. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back next week with a short Gone Bite on Spotify and back everywhere else the week after. For more information on Azaria Chamberlain, amongst the many sources we used, we found Evil Angels, The Case of Lindy Chamberlain by John Bryson, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Gone for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Gone was written by Matthew Teamstra, with writing assistance by Ali Wicker, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hi, it's Richard, and I'm back to remind you to check out the new Spotify original from Parcast, Very Presidential, with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. There's torrid love affairs, shocking blackmail schemes, and even murder. 
I think you're really going to get a kick out of it. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.